0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with educators, scientists, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving ocean, has thriving ocean life above and below the surface. So we have a pretty full show today. We're going to be talking with some scientists the first half hour or so about uh, monitoring for radiation. We've been hearing a lot about this in the news, and there's a lot of efforts here on the coast of California, and we're going to talk about that. We'll also have a lot of announcements later on in the show, as well as hearing about some exciting sightings on the coast of some beautiful marine mammals. Some orcas have been sighted. So we'll talk with some folks that are posted on the coast Now, nearly three years, just almost an anniversary here on April 11th, after the massive earthquake and tsunami led to meltdowns and releases of radioactivity from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan, many people have expressed concerns about the arrival of trace amounts of radioactivity in our air and Pacific Ocean currents. The research is clear that there was a substantial amount of radioactive materials released into the ocean, and these are being dispersed and transported throughout the ocean and air and may be detectable in California beginning sometime this year. So this has raised a lot of questions. I've got a lot of questions on the street from friends and family and just people I run into, and so I'm really excited to talk about the topic today with my two guests. On the telephone with me, I have two experts in California. I have Dr. Kai Vetter, who is a professor in residence with the nuclear, Department of Nuclear Engineering at UC Berkeley and Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, who specializes in applied nuclear physics. And we also have Dr. Stephen Manley, a professor in biological sciences at Cal State University Long Beach, specializing in marine algal physiology and biochemistry. So, Kai and Stephen, welcome to KWMR. You're both live on the air.
1: Hi. Hi, thank you very much.
0: All right, I can hear both of you loud and clear. Thanks for joining me today. I want to start with some really basic questions because I think some of the stuff that's been tough for a lot of people to understand is just some basics about radioactivity. Can you briefly describe what radioactivity is and what's the difference with radioactivity and radiation and maybe Hi. why don't we start with you?
2: Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. So, radioactivity is a, a kind of a natural phenomenon which describes the decay of an atomic nucleus. So, a nucleus is uh, it's part of uh, the, uh, the world we're living on. It's a, uh, it's a consistent, uh, it's part of, the, of an atom. So, you have the nucleus and then you have electrons uh, going around the nucleus which uh, um, makes up the world we're living in. And the nucleus, in, in many cases, is not, not stable, and we, uh, we call the instability and decay process uh, radioactivity. So that means we have uh, a radionuclide or uh, the nucleus, which um, is radioactive. It decays. And by in that process, it, decay, it, it emits radiation. I so see. So radiation is due to the uh, decay, radioactive decay of a nucleus.
0: Okay. Who monitors for radiation in the environment? I know there's been a lot of confusion about that across the in California in terms of who's monitoring for this accident, but can you give us an idea of agencies or organizations that are responsible for monitoring for radiation?
2: So there are several institutions and agencies in the United States and worldwide responsible for, many, uh, for monitoring radiation uh, globally and, and nationally. Here in the United States, Certainly the Environmental Protection Agency, APA, uh, EPA, who is responsible for measuring radiation uh, in that country. Um, the, the Department of Energy uh, also has responsibilities to uh, specifically to uh, do measurements in response of uh, accidents or events. Um, for example, uh, the uh, people from the Department of Energy were sent right after the uh, 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 the tsunami and the, and the indication of the major release of radiation were, um, uh, went over to Fukushima. We did the first aerial monitoring measurement in Fukushima. So the Department of Energy is responsible for that part. Um, and then we have Homeland Security. Uh, the FEMA is also uh, has capabilities to monitor radiation. So that certainly happened right after Fukushima. There were a lot of uh, measurements be done by these agencies um, to make sure that uh, the levels from Fukushima were um, small enough that so it would not cause any uh, any health effects, uh, specifically in United States.
0: So do you know specifically why we didn't hear a lot from these agencies during this part of the monitoring? It seemed like it was rather quiet and I think that left a lot of concern for folks.
2: Yes, uh, certainly we, are qu- we were quite aware of that too, that the uh, the, the government itself was not really uh, too outspoken about uh, some of the measurements they did and that's certainly the reason we, we tried to step in to do the measurements and then to provide the necessary information uh, to the public Um, So that certainly was one of the reasons we actually started also with the measurements, uh, because we felt there was uh, a lack of of information being provided to the public. Um, So why they didn't, uh, I, I think, I mean, I cannot really speak really on behalf of the... Uh, responsible uh, entities at this agency, but it was felt that it was uh, the levels were small enough so they did not raise certain uh, uh, levels um, in in responding to to the um, arriving radioactivity from Fukushima.
0: Mm-hmm. So you helped establish a local radiation watch, Berkeley Rad Watch. Can you tell us a little bit about this? It sounds like a unique system for monitoring airborne radioactivity.
2: So right after it became clear that there were major releases in Fukushima, as you pointed out about three years ago, we started to uh, to set up instruments here in in Berkeley um, to to monitor the arrival of the of the released radiation uh, for two reasons: one, to uh, to to do the science to uh, see I mean, to kind of uh, for, um, see what, what we can observe and whether we can understand what we actually observe in terms of the arrival of the radiation from Fukushima and then the dispersion and disappearance of the radiation in our environment, not just by rain, water, but also all the different samples. Uh, we got uh, hands-on, we did measurements. Um, so that was started about three years ago, and, and one of the missions is not only, it's not only to understand the science behind the transport, but also to provide the data to the public, as I pointed out before. So, um, and that ended up in the in an initiative we now call Red Watch, um, and you find that on our redwatch.berkeley.edu. Uh, you find a lot of information there um, in the measurements and the results we, uh, we uh, um, uh, uh, obtained over the last three years. And uh, more recently, we focused on marine biology because now, as you pointed out at the beginning, there are scientific models predict the transport from uh, particular cesium from Fukushima to be arriving here on the West Coast and to to be prepared for that, to be able to measure the, the uh, potential increase of radiation. So we focused uh, on on marine biology and that's uh, now expanded view, expanded scope for the Red Watch. And of course then also more focusing on the kelp Watch, which Professor Stanley can tell you much uh, later about about that much more in detail. So in summary, it captures all the efforts we have been doing here in in Berkeley to do measurements and provide the data to the public.
0: What exactly was released into the environment during the Fukushima accident, and what is being released continuously? I understand there's still releases happening to this day, and I don't know if that's airborne or just ocean-borne.
2: So initially uh, mainly due to the explosion the hydrogen explosion a lot of products which were contained in the reactor were released in the atmosphere um, what we call the one of the decay processes is the fission which ultimately produces the energy we're using with nuclear power so some of the fission products were released in the atmosphere initially and that's what we're able to see uh, initially here in California because of the atmospheric transport of these of the radioactivity which were released into the atmosphere so that uh, um, was done initially and within a couple of months that was uh, uh, kind of disappeared in our environment so what also happened at, starting at that time was an, a major release into the into the water system and that still continues um, as as of now uh, due to several effects due to main, main two main reasons one is the groundwater itself there's still movement in groundwater and uh, at this site, picking up some of the radioactive materials which then are transported into the water system, particularly into the ocean. And in addition, the, 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 the reactor still needs to be cooled down with water. So they are still um, uh, trying to keep the, uh, the reactor cold by, by putting in a lot of water, which tends to leak out to some level out of the reactor and then it's released into the into the groundwater level as well and that is uh, being released uh, into the ocean as well. Still, as we speak, even though there are significant efforts to stop that, there's still some small amount of uh, releases uh, ongoing.
0: Right. It's causing a lot of concern here in California.
2: Yes. However, what I want to point out, and I was just in, in, in uh, Fukushima three weeks ago where I got the latest numbers on these measurements. So if you even though there are still releases into the ocean um, from the Fukushima side, the amount of, of releases specifically would make it out into the ocean, then are transported from in the ocean over here, are uh, very small. Mm-hmm. So that even if you just go uh, hundreds of yards out into the ocean, uh, you'd, you don't really see, it's, it's the, the concentration is, is extremely small. Um, so that's important to uh, to remember that the releases, even though particularly initially were substantial, the releases now are not as significant anymore. And uh, because of the dispersion in the ocean um, and the fact that most of the material settles very quickly locally, um, it does not even hundreds of yards out there does not really necessarily mean is is a health hazard.
0: How about for the local people in Japan in terms of their health hazard?
2: So, um, as you might remember, there were a large evacuation right after the, uh, not only because of the tsunami, which, of course, uh, devastated the whole coastline over a hundred of mile plus, also because of the releases in Fukushima from the nuclear power plant, there were enormous evacuation of people to bring them to safety. And they are now slowly being moved back into, the, back to their homes. Um, so even though the levels are slightly increased in some of the areas compared to the background radiation, they don't really uh, uh, pose a health risk. Now, close closer to the site on the restricted area, closer to the site, that's a little different. So there are still um, levels of radiation which are above natural background radiation levels. Uh, however, nobody is, is, is going back to live there.
0: Okay. Well, Kai Vetter, thank you so much for giving us an update about this. I understand you need to get off the phone rather quickly, so let's yes. transition into the kelp. How did you get hooked up with the kelp watch that Stephen Manley set up? How did, you two, how did you both meet to start this project?
1: Well, I was familiar with his work that he posted on the website that he gave. Uh, not only did he measure uh, radioactivity that came over in the atmosphere, in rainwater, but I, I believe he also measured it in some plants. So I already uh, was familiar with his work in this regard, and it was always, and so I thought that uh, he would be a perfect person to collaborate with on Kelp Watch 2014, and the collaboration has proved fruitful so far.
0: Wonderful. Kai, um, I know you're stuck on time here. Would yeah. you like to say anything about Kelp Watch before you need to sign off?
2: No, I, I well, I think we are really excited on, 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 on continuing uh, these measurements of, of generally of, of all the of a large range of samples and kelp specifically. Uh, as Professor Stanley will tell you, that's really a sensitive way to 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 look what's actually in our ocean here on our west coast. So we're pretty excited to to help out of that and continue that. Now, and just in, in in general, I uh, I would recommend people to to check out available data, for example, on our website, um, where we are really proud on on really providing data, real data and facts, uh, to address some of the concerns and some of the claims and unfounded claims in the media and in on the web, particularly. So I just encourage everyone to be critical and to, uh, to look for sources of reliable data, such as us or other institutions and other uh, uh, entities who actually do measurements and provide real data, and to be aware of that and check these, these sources out.
0: Thank you so much. That's radwatch.berkeley.edu, and we've been talking with Dr. Kai Vetter of Berkeley, and thank you so much for okay. talking. I know you have to go, so
2: yeah, I have class in ten minutes. Okay, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: And we still have on the line with us Dr. Stephen Manley, and he's with Cal State University Long Beach, and I'd love to talk more about Kelp Watch. So why kelp?
1: Well, uh, Kelp Watch is a uh scientific campaign that uh, I initiated to to use the kelp that runs up and down our coastline as a sentinel organism to detect possible arrival of these radioisotopes from uh, Fukushima that are arriving in the seawater. And uh, why kelp? Well, to me and to, to many, kelp's the perfect uh, organism to use, first of all. Uh, We find it up and down the California coastline. In fact, we find it from Kodiak Island all the way to Baja, Mexico. And so it's uh, a perfect sentinel lining our coastline. And so it'll be the first to come in contact uh, with this material that strikes our coastline. Uh, Second of all, the two kelp species that we're using, bull kelp and giant kelp, form large canopies. So they put most of their biomass up in the surface water. And that's what we're interested in, the amount of radioactivity that's coming over in the surface water. So most of the biomass of these kelps come into contact with or potentially come into the contact with that water. Uh, Thirdly, um, we know that kelp is a very good filter in terms of absorbing the type of radioisotopes that are known to be in seawater, albeit they're present in seawater in very low concentrations, but kelp has the ability to suck these up like a sponge and concentrate them in their tissues. So even though the radioactivity may be uh, n- not be indetectable in seawater. Because uh, many of these radioisotopes are concentrated in kelp, we can detect them in kelp if indeed they're present at all. So the major radioisotopes in this seawater that's been slowly making its way in the ocean currents from Japan to our shoreline are the isotopes of cesium, and we know that kelps concentrate cesium uh, 20-fold over what we find it in seawater. Um, another reason for using kelp—it's really easy to uh, collect, and it's very easy to process. So for for this uh, particular study, where every each sample that's collected is about 14 pounds of wet kelp, it can be collected from boat, it can be collected snorkeling, it can be collected by scuba, and that 14 pounds gets dried and and uh, Milled to a uniform uh, particle size, and ends up uh, filling about a one-liter bottle. So, 14 pounds of kelp is in one liter. Wow! A- and that one liter can be easily analyzed by Dr. Vetter's group. You know, you don't have to wrap the detector with 14 pounds of wet kelp. You can just have this this dry kelp powder and uh, You can think of it as concentrated kelp. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It can basically be uh, analyzed. And then the most important reason uh, to use kelp is, even though the projected amounts of radioactivity coming over in seawater is extremely small and uh, has yet to be detected in seawater along our coastline, I think it's important that uh, we know if any, gets into our our kelp because these two kelps are the basis of what we call the kelp forest ecosystem, which is one of the most productive and complex ecosystems on Earth, supporting well over thousands uh, uh, thousands different species and numerous individuals, of course, of different organisms. And so even though a very small amount may get into the kelp, but still enough for us to detect, I think it's important for us to know how much is there. And then, um, <clears throat> well, both from a scientific uh, <laughs> standpoint, but more importantly, just we need to know if any gets into our kelp forest ecosystem, because then we know that we are not immune from these large events that occur very across the Pacific.
0: It's really amazing, I think, this whole situation has really illustrated to the public that may not be as tuned into the ocean as as uh, you and i are specifically of how connected we are interconnected this ocean is especially especially here in the pacific the marine debris from the tsunami as well as the radioactivity has been in the news and i think that's one highlight to show as people are learning a little bit more about the interconnectivity of the ocean in terms of the kelp forest ecosystem I think this is such a fascinating study, and there's so many species that are supported in the kelp. Is there a human health concern in terms of bioaccumulation? If there are species that are eating a, a lot of the kelp and then eventually up into fish, perhaps, and then into humans, is that a concern?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that no local fish populations have been shown to contain uh, the, the major radioisotopes those being uh, cesium 137 and 134 um, I think uh, recently there's been some confirmation that these radioisotopes have been found in salmon I think primarily from the Pacific Northwest and I'm, I don't know the amounts but um, I'm not an expert in uh, in terms of uh, the effect of radiation on uh, humans, for example, but those who are experts say that it's not a human health uh, risk or hazard at this time and probably won't be.
0: That's good. I did know that on radwatch.berkeley.edu, Dr. Kai Vetter's website that he mentioned, they had questions on there, and one of them was about salmon in the Pacific Northwest, red salmon. So, and it was very low levels. And I think that people are just concerned that, you know, we have low levels of everything, and low levels of everything kind of together are, are just not good for, for human health as well as um, health in, in wildlife.
1: Well, I mean, it would be best if we didn't have any of these uh, man made radioisotopes. Circulating in our environment, but you have to remember that there's a lot of natural radioactive materials that are uh, permeate our foods and our environment. Uh, for example, uh, potassium-40 is a naturally produced uh, radioisotope um, <clears throat> that's found in most of the food that we eat in concentrations much higher than we anticipate seeing it in kelp or much higher than we see in the t- the tuna that was captured off of San Diego, for example, or the salmon. Now, again, I'm not a health physicist, so I can't uh, comment too much on, on uh how uh, damaging these natural radioisotopes are but you know life has evolved in the presence of these natural radioisotopes since its inception so uh, evidently life does okay in the presence of these natural uh, radionuclides now the the human-made ones even though we know that these radioisotopes of cesium are extremely low thousand times lower than the naturally occurring ones um, We we don't expect them to be a, a human health risk, but again, it's good to document how much is there, and one of the reasons for initiating Kelp Watch 2014 was to get the word out to the public of how much is there, um, where it's going. That is, did it get into kelp? And if so, how much? And do we anticipate that this is going to be a harmful amount? And so on our kelp watch webpage, we will be posting all our results with scientific uh, commentary. Again, this is for the public edification, because as was mentioned uh, earlier by you, there was not a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Data out there or comment out there about the possible uh, arrival of these uh, radioisotopes after the release at Fukushima. So, one of the reasons for Kelp Watch is to get the data out there so the public can see it and then analyze it in context to naturally occurring radioactivity also.
0: That's great. It's taken me a long time to cover this topic on the show, mainly because of the lack of information. And I was really happy to learn about your work and also RadWatch to realize there's some work going on on the whole West Coast, and you have a lot of collaborators up and down um, taking samples. How many years are you going to sample for in terms of documenting any changes?
1: Well, uh, KelpWatch... 2014 got its name primarily because one of the scientific models projected the arrival of this radioactive seawater some time about mid-April this month and so decided uh, and planned to have three sampling periods uh, over this year to see if we could detect this material so our first sampling period just ended Uh, the beginning of the month and we're in the process of analyzing the the material right now but um, other models say it won't really peak until 2015 well we'll have kelp watch 2015 then or 2016 if we need to do so Um, but in terms of uh, kelp watch 2014 we're collecting material from over 42 different kelp populations from uh, Kodiak Island to Baja and we're also getting samples from Chile, sort of our far removed uh, baseline or reference site. And uh, we're also getting related seaweed but not a kelp from two places in the subtropical regions, one's from Guam and one's from Hawaii. And so this couldn't happen without the involvement of numerous people volunteering to, uh, to absorb the costs and to collect this material. So we have over uh, 40 marine scientists and, and assistants uh, scattered throughout the West Coast, uh, most of them being academicians uh, from universities, but also we have people from uh, educators from private organizations, uh, scientists from uh, NOAA and certain state parks uh and also two uh seaweed harvesters up at, up uh your well at least one is up your way <laughs> mm-hmm. who have who have and all these people when i first contacted them i said hey we need to do something let's let's uh are you on board they all volunteered to to come on board uh basically pro bono absorbing all the costs uh themselves costs associated with going out and collecting the kelp and then costs associated with processing the kelp. So we have three processing sites. One is at Moss Landing Marine Lab, the other one is at uh, San Diego S- uh, State University, and the other one at, at my home university, Cal State Long Beach, who receive the wet kelp, dry it, mill it to a uniform size, then we send it for analysis. And uh, although this project initially started without any funding, I can say that we've got some modest funding from uh, USCC Grant, which is uh, one of the C-Grant institutions in California, which have allowed us to get through this first sampling period, and from the C- uh, California State University system, which has given us funding which will allow us to get through at least the second uh, sampling uh, period. So, And there's other uh, funding that I'm pursuing. But this couldn't have happened without... The uh, marine scientists on the West Coast volunteering and collecting pro bono. That's great. And then, of course, it, it's it's really great that Dr. Vedder and myself got together so that uh, because he has the state of the art counting facility at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, which will allow us to detect very small amounts.
0: That's great. I want to let local listeners know. First of all, we're talking with Dr. Stephen Manley of Cal State University Long Beach, and we're talking about Kelp Watch 2014. And also, I know that samples were um, given or donated locally here from Point Reyes region, um, as well as up the Sonoma Coast. So we will have. Do you will you have the results um, based on each unique location for what we hope
1: the public? To do is since the It's first thought that this material will arrive up in British Columbia and move its way south and north. We hope within the next few weeks to uh, present on our web page the results from uh, samples taken in Alaska, British Columbia, Washington, and Northern California up your way. So... um, we had uh, Humboldt State University collected material, Bodega Marine Lab did, as did uh, NOAA, and uh, California Department of Fish and Li- Wildlife also collected up that way. So the Northern California Pacific Northwest results will probably be uh, forthcoming in the next few weeks.
0: Fantastic. And why don't you give us the website for folks to learn a little bit more about Kelp Watch and keep their eyes open for the results as they get posted?
1: Sure. It's uh, kelpwatch.berkeley.edu. Excellent. And if you go there, you'll, you'll see a lot of uh, different uh, questions answered, like why do we use kelp? Why are we concentrating on cesium? Uh, a list of participating scientists and uh, just a little bit about the history of KelpWatch 2014. As uh, Dr. Vetter spoke about, the initial release was in in the atmosphere and so about a month after that initial release back in 2011, uh, I and a colleague of mine got a few people together to collect kelp from California with the idea that we might be able to detect the airborne material uh, in the uh, canopy of of the giant kelp, specifically iodine-131. And so, lo and behold, we did detect low levels of iodine-131 in kelp from Santa Cruz down to... uh, Orange County, California. So what happened is that this initial material that was released in the atmosphere mm. blew over in the in the jet stream and got incorporated in in the clouds and then fell out onto the kelp canopy in the rainfall that occurred ten days later. So that's sort of what got me into using kelp as this detector of radioactivity to begin with, and then having read uh, early, late last year that this material was coming over in the seawater. That's sort of what prompted me to get KelpWatch 2014 up and running.
0: Fantastic. Um, we're, for folks, tune in. You are listening to KWMR, Point Ray Station, and Belenus. And I just have one more question for you. It kind of goes back a little bit. But I know from my experience with kelp and the life cycle with Temperature changes that in warm water El Nino years the upper canopy kind of melts away a little bit and kelp forests become a little bit thinner. How does that? How might that affect your study? Will you have less access to kelp? But just I've seen like so very little canopy when we have those warm water conditions. But is there enough there for sampling?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, kelps do not like warm water, and at least down here in Southern California, when the summer comes usually the canopy starts to uh, disappear or looks pretty tattered. Uh, it doesn't tolerate warm water very well and also warm water is usually an indication of low nutrients also, so the two uh, do slow down the growth of the kelp quite a bit, but most uh, 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 some of the biomass remains below in cold water so it can survive the summers and of course comes back in the spring. But the past several years have been unusually cold in terms of the ocean temperatures along our coastline. And I, I don't know if you can see it up there, but south of Point Conception, the kelp beds have just been flourishing because the summer water temperatures have been very, very cool. So we have a huge amount of kelp in Southern California, and I think the same is true in uh, central and northern California. We haven't had very warm summer temperatures, so the kelp is thriving. That's so great. at least for Kelp Watch 2014, I don't uh, anticipate having a lack of kelp. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope <laughs> Actually, there will the be... the worst thing for the kelp was the past storms that came through and ripped out a lot of it.
0: Mm. <laughs> well, we hope that kelp hangs on. It's so vital to so many, so many species, and it's beautiful in itself. And It's really interesting to learn of this study. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Manley, and we will keep posted for the results as they get posted and and share them.
1: Again, in the next several weeks, we should have the Northern California samples, uh, the results uh, of those samples uh, posted on the website. And again, we're not just going to post the data. We're going to post the data with commentary because we think it's important that uh, the public hear from experts in the field and and are able to look at this data in the context of uh, a variety of factors like like naturally occurring radioactivity and the like
0: well thank you again it's really informative to learn of this and I'm really happy to share this information with the broader public. So, hey,
1: can I make a plug? Sure, please there do. Is, there is a, a, a contributor who's been w- with me since day one up in your region, and it's his name is uh, Andrew Donis, and his little company is Pacific Wildcraft Incorporated. He's a seaweed harvester, and he stuck with Kelp Watch 2014 through thick and thin and was one of the very first people to sign on to this. And he's sampling the Mendocino Coast. And so uh, I just want to say, not only are there, you know, professors doing this, but there are lay people doing this also.
0: Are you looking for other volunteers for... I think
1: we're pretty much maxed out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'd volunteer. Take any more
1: samples? It's we barely we're pretty much saturated right now. However, if depending on any trends that we see, or if we need to have more fine scale resolution in various uh, regions, then we might be uh, we might need uh, more participants. But right now, I think everything's under control.
0: Wow, fantastic. Well, thank you. It's nice to hear of the seaweed harvesters. I actually had a show in December on seaweed harvesting here on the Sonoma Coast, which mm-hmm. is really, really informative. Seaweed is so interesting. And um, it's great to hear that they're involved as well. So it spans all of all of academia to uh, commercial industry and everyday interested folks. So thanks yeah, again.
1: You're, you're more than welcome. Thank right. you for having me.
0: Have a great afternoon.
1: Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.
0: We've just been talking with Dr. Stephen Manley from Cal State University, Long Beach, who specializes in marine algal physiology and biochemistry. And combined with Dr. Kai Vetter at UC Berkeley, they have been they formed Kelp Watch 2014, as we just heard, and monitoring kelp up and down the coast here of the West Coast for radioactive elements that have traveled across from the earthquake and the Fukushima Dai- um, Daiichi nuclear power plant meltdown and we will keep posted on these results as they become available and share them with you on ocean currents i'm going to take a quick break here and we're going to come back i have another short interview with some more announcements and we'll be back in just a little bit thanks for tuning into ocean currents Bit. earlier in the show we were talking about radiation and monitoring on the coast for that and now we're going to focus a little bit more on some of the megafauna that visit our shores and on the phone with me I have Norma Jellison who is a volunteer with Stewards of Coast and Redwoods out of Sonoma County and Norma has been on several of my uh, wildlife watching trips to Cordell Bank and alerted me to some exciting sightings out at Bodega Head this past week. So, Norma, welcome to KWMR Ocean Currents. You're live on the air.
3: Well, it's good to be talking with you and folks listening in.
0: So how long have you been volunteering at Stewards of Coast and Redwoods? For about 18 years. 18 years. Mm -hmm. And you've been out at Bodega Head um, helping to monitor or educate people about gray whales that are are easily seen from Bodega Head?
3: Actually, um, we're docents. So Stewards of the Coast and Redwoods has a number of docent programs, uh, harbor seals at the mouth of the Russian River, and um, various inland sites in the Redwoods. But out at Bodega Head, we do whale watch. And the docents are there every weekend from noon to 4, except for Fisherman's Festival weekend, the last weekend of April to just help visitors see the Pacific gray whales as they migrate past. And this time of year, the gray whales are headed to Alaska to eat their favorite and their primary food source, amphipods. And then later this month and into May, we'll be seeing the larger pulse of mothers and calves. Many are, are still south in the mating and calving lagoons in Baja And the mothers and calves travel very close to shore because the mother is still nursing the calf and stops to do that quite often, and also because it is a calf that needs to rest. So this time when the mothers and calves go by is an excellent time for viewing, and Bodega Head is a great location, easily accessed, to get to see this incredible parade of animals that go by.
0: So I take it this time of year maybe is a little bit of a lull and animals are starting to move north.
3: Yes, we have we've we've consistently seen solitary gray whales going by uh, every weekend when the conditions are right. Yesterday we saw four. Um, the prior weekend, one of the days when we had good conditions, we saw eleven. But we don't normally really count because we're only there for a short period of time during the day.
0: Excellent. So tell us what you saw last weekend. Well, last the last Sunday of March, when the wind
3: in the ocean calmed down late in the afternoon, we had this exceptional sighting of a large pod of orcas off the head. It it was really quite an event. Um, They were about two miles offshore, and they were breaching and milling around and just lolling around, if you will, for about 45 minutes before they continued south. And at that same time, we were having gray whales passing by close in, going north. So it was really a spectacular sighting and very unusual to see the orca off of Bodega Head.
0: So you said about two miles off, did you have scope set up on the... We
3: had, we, we had um, binoculars, we, and there may have, I believe that there was somebody there who was a birder who had a scope that ch- shared with... Some of the visitors, but we were using binoculars. And there were only three of us left from whale watch because we had shut down because the conditions were so poor. It was such high wind and, and whitecaps, and you couldn't really see anything. And then all of a sudden, everything just calmed down, and there they were.
0: That's so so exciting. How many animals did you see? Well, there were 15 to 20. Wow. It was,
3: yeah, it was, it was quite um, a phenomenal amount. So um, the Speculation is that they might have been the some, one of the resident, the northwest resident uh, populations that came down a couple of years ago, um, and I understand from you, I believe, and I called the lighthouse that um, they also saw some orca off of the lighthouse on Friday.
0: Yeah, so Friday I got emails. This is is the, I feel like an armchair naturalist. I haven't seen any of these whales myself. (laughs) But I really appreciate people telling me about them. It's very exciting. Yeah, Yeah, so Point Reyes Lighthouse folks called me and told me they saw six orca Uh right off the Point Reyes Lighthouse doing the same behavior that you noticed, Mm. kind of milling around. Some of them were kind of swimming upside down, showing their bellies for a little bit, (laughs) but just hanging out, moving around, and they didn't stick around too long. Mm -hmm. But I just, it made me start wondering, I wonder if these are the same animals.
3: Yeah. That's, that's you know, it's quite possible. And, and the question is, you know, we aren't hearing that they're seeing them out at the Farallon Islands, but, uh, you know, they like their salmon. And so the tom-toms might have gone out to tell them salmon um, in great uh, numbers are around
0: right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but uh, the latest Bay Nature magazine features an article written by Sarah Allen and Mo Flannery from the Cal Academy. Great article all about orcas. And I just think it's wonderful to share because there's also been a lot in the news about orcas in captivity. And I think it's such an amazing thing that we can see these right here on our coast. Not very commonly, somewhat uncommon, but still um this is an interesting time of year where we might be able to see them right so coming out there
3: yeah and and the greatest the great thing is reliably you can see the gray whale the pacific gray whale and that's a real treat for us and a real gift because you don't have to get out in a boat and go out into the ocean for those people who have some considerations or get seasick you can actually stand on the land on these promontories like Bodega Head and Point Reyes and other promontories up and down the coast and see them with your with your naked eye you, you really don't need binoculars although they're helpful to zero in on them but um we're really we're really um, so it's so great for us to be able to see them from land
0: that's wonderful Well, Norma, thank you for alerting me to the sighting and just chatting for a few minutes here on Ocean Currents. And let me know if you see some more whales, okay? I will. And (laughs) everybody,
3: come on out and and watch for the whales with us.
0: We sure will soon. (laughs) Okay. Take care. Orcas seeding, seen off of Bodega Head and Point Reyes Lighthouse. And this is a great time of year to get out to see the northbound gray whales and cow-calf pairs might be seen. I've seen them right outside the surf line um, coming down the coast of Pacifica once. They were right, hanging right outside the surfers. It was really, really cool. And Point Reyes is a great spot because because the peninsula sticks out there. It's sort of a pinch point. Those whales have to make it around that peninsula to keep going north. So that's a great spot to see them as well. I wanted to point out that the Gulf of the Frowns National Marine Sanctuary with Aquarium of the Bay will be hosting a talk with Eric Hoyt, who is an author of several ocean science books, but many related to orcas with his research based on orca whales. Um, And that's May 13th. Aquarium of the Bay has been doing a lot of really good lectures, great speakers coming in. Um, Definitely check them out for what's happening monthly. But that talk is May 13th at Aquarium of the Bay in the evening. And another marine mammal alert for folks is it's harbor seal pupping season here. And we really need to keep an eye on uh, when we're walking on beaches and to not stumble upon a seal and potentially scare it or scare the mom off. This happened to me once. I was out at Limitor Beach and just walking. not really paying the closest of attention. The next thing I know, I saw this little harbor seal pup in front of me, and I, I just turned and left right away because they're very vulnerable to being disturbed. And the mom seal who's nearby is watching, and if she feels her, she might be in danger of uh, some predation, she will take off and leave that pup alone. So please, please be out there with your eyes open when you're anywhere in San Francisco Bay or out here on the coast at some key harbor seal points. Here at Point Reyes National Seashore, there's a seasonal closure at the tip of Limontor. You can walk all the way west to the channel of Drake's Estero, but you can't walk into the Estero because that's where the pups are and the moms. So be aware of that And if you do see a seal alone and you're not so sure, you can call the Marine Mammal Center at 415-289-SEAL. Pretty easy to remember or also alert the Park Service if you happen to be here at Point Reyes National Seashore. But make sure to stay away a minimum of 300 feet. More is definitely better and definitely keep pets secured and away as much as you can. So lots of marine mammal activity in this region. We're really lucky to have these animals to see um, out here on the coast. I have a couple other announcements to share. Uh, May 1st is a joint sanctuary advisory council meeting for the Gulf of the Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries. And this is in Bodega Bay. Um, There isn't an agenda or meeting time yet, but likely this will be a very interesting meeting um, probably focusing on the proposed sanctuary expansion and what's happening with that. So, this would be a, a this is a public meeting. Anyone's invited to attend, and there is a public comment period. So, if you're interested in, in keeping up on that, that date May first, um, come to our website cordellbank.noaa.gov or fairlawns.noaa.gov um, as we get closer to May first for more information about that meeting. But I wanted people to know about that. And also, um, I will be hosting a photo reception as well as a little 25th anniversary event for Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary at the Red Barn Classroom here at Point Reyes National Seashore, and that is on May 10th, and there'll be a bit of an open house from 1 to 5 p.m. We'll have some light food and beverage. You can take a tour of our photo exhibit that's going to be moving on from the Point Reyes region after this. This is the last showing here in West Marin, and... We'll also have some really exciting things to see. We're going to bring our remotely operated vehicle. We have an ROV. And we're going to bring that to the classroom so people can see that up close and personal and talk to the folks that operate it, see some video footage from when we operate that down on Cordell Bank. And we'll have some kids activities. And it'll be a really nice event, May tenth, 1 to 5. It's free. You don't need to register. Just drop in anytime. And I'd love to see some of you. So come on down, Red Barn Classroom. And we just have a couple more minutes. I will also let you know that Reef Check is an organization which I hope to have on the show at some point. It's a group of scuba divers that become trained in rocky reef monitoring and collecting data. And they have over a thousand recreational scuba divers that have been trained to scientifically monitor the underwater rocky reef ecosystem, including kelp forests. And their data is very instrumental in helping to monitor the effectiveness of marine protected areas that have been put in. So they're going to be um, recruiting volunteers, and they're looking for divers to help get involved, get trained, so you can get involved and make your scuba dives count for data. So you can get more information at reefcheck.org. I know some scuba divers around here, so check them out. It's actually all up and down the coast of California, and the trainings are coming up this summer Reefcheck.org and really interesting way to kind of learn more about underwater, the underwater environment, and some of the science behind monitoring for it and how they do monitor for it. Really, really cool. We've had a discussion about radiation and the movement of the radioactivity from the Fukushima Daiichi power plant melting down. And three years ago, we had Dr. Kai Vetter and Dr. Stephen Manley. And I wanted to give you those websites again to keep up on. The latest information, kelpwatch.berkeley.edu, as well as radwatch.berkeley.edu. Both of those are great sites to keep up, and a lot of great stuff already posted there, frequently asked questions, background of the projects, and the results will be posted really soon with the kelpwatch. That's about it. We are at the end of our time here for Ocean Currents. I'll be back next month. And this show is always saved as a podcast, both on the archives on KWMR's website, but on cordellbank.noaa.gov. You can go and catch all the shows from the past six or seven years now of ocean currents. And I'd love to hear from you. So if you have ideas for topics or questions, comments, please email me, jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. Thanks for tuning in today to KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to (laughs) cordellbank.noaa.gov.